Distractions. We all face them. A distraction is anything that prevents us from moving moving towards our destiny, goal, call, and purpose in life. As Christians, a distraction is anything that pulls us away from Christ and what his word teaches. As non-Christians, a distraction is anything that keeps them away from coming to Christ. You see, our minds and our focus is connected. Whatever we fix our minds on, that will be our focus. If our hearts and minds are focused on God and His Word, that's where our focus will be. Now, our enemy knows this, and that's why he would love to get us distracted and drawn away from the faith. To get us focused on anything but Jesus and His words, be it signs and wonders, practices that are non-biblical, In fact, the Apostle Paul warned that in the last days, this would be the case. This would be happening. He gave these words of warning concerning the days in which we're living, the days before Jesus would return. He said this in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and, and doctrines of demons. That's why in these last days in which we're living, we need to stay so focused. We need to be keeping the main thing, the main thing. What's the main thing? The main thing is pursuing God. The main thing is following Christ. The main thing is glorifying God. The main thing is honoring Him with with your life. The main thing is staying focused and keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. And to recognize that anything... Anything that would seek to pull us away from the main thing is a distraction from our enemy. And that's what I see happening here in our text this morning. And these are our two points, really two distractions. Number one, a woman who's focused on Mary. And number two, a crowd who's focused on signs and wonders. Now, we left off last week with Jesus demonstrating his power over the demonic forces at work in our world today. He he freed a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak. But the reaction to that miracle was, was interesting. Some of the crowd marveled, but some were offended. Remember, there were two criticisms against Jesus. They said first that Jesus did this by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. And secondly, they, they thought that, that there was, was that they sought from him a sign from heaven. As if casting out devils on earth was not enough of a sign, they wanted uh, Jesus to do something, cast something down from heaven. You recall from last week I suggested that Jesus give them a sign, something like fire and brimstone from Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe some ground opening you know, like with the, you know, the rebellion of Korah. But instead of responding right away to their demand for a sign, first Jesus answered their claim about casting out demons by Beelzebub, the rule of demons, and how ridiculous a claim like that was. And I would have to say very blasphemous as well. And then Jesus made it very clear in verse 23 that he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And we looked at how Jesus is not going to force anyone to follow him. It's a choice that we all have to make. Either you will give your life to Jesus Christ in repentance of your sin, or you're against him, and you're going to have to pay for your sin personally. To me, the best decision of my life was to choose Christ, to take that free gift of salvation through the finished work of the cross. Only to find out later, you know, I didn't choose him, he chose me. But either way, I'm blessed. 
So we pick it up here in verse 27. And point number one, a woman focused on Mary. Look at what happens next. Verse 27. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. Now, if you and I were in that crowd, we might have said, you know, that that doesn't sound too bad. What's wrong with that? But I think we really need to understand what was happening at this moment. There was a spiritual battle taking place. Jesus was freeing the grip that Satan had on people's lives, and he was touching, and he was moving, and he was healing, and a mighty move of of God's Spirit was working in a powerful way. The principalities and the powers of darkness were being defeated on all fronts, and eventually would be completely defeated uh, when Jesus went to the cross. So I actually see this as a distraction in order to get the crowds focused off of Jesus and what he came to do and onto anything else than that. Even onto Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. See, Jesus is talking about the power of God and salvation. He's talking about making a choice of, to follow him or not. He just got finished saying, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is an altar call type of moment. And suddenly this distraction, suddenly this woman from the crowd raises her voice and says to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Jesus, you're great and all, but your mom, oh man, she's the best. Man, she's the one that gave birth to you. Man, she's the one that nursed you. She needs to be lifted up. You know, this is really the first attempt in Scripture to lift up or to, to venerate and bring exaltation to Mary. Now, as we dig into this a little bit deeper, uh, I want you to understand that I'm not coming against Mary. She was truly uh, the most blessed among women. But to ascribe worship or to pray to Mary is something that really has come from the pagan religions and not from the Word of God. Often in pagan religions, people would worship goddesses. In fact, in the ancient Babylonian religion, they worshipped a man called Nimrod, but they equally worshipped Nimrod's mother, Semiramis, as she was given the title, the Queen of Heaven, the Mother of God. There were prayers offered to her so that she might intercede for that person to her son. Now, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has done Mary a very disservice. In the Roman Church, members are instructed to pray to Mary using the same words used for Semiramis. To say, Holy Mother of God, pray for sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Understand, there's no scriptural basis for a prayer like that. In fact, we see the very opposite in Scripture. Every time the focus returned to Mary throughout Scripture, we see Jesus correcting this false teaching. Now, if you're wondering what, Jesus, what Mary had to say about this, think about John's Gospel, chapter 2. Mary came to Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana because they ran out of wine. And so she asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, do something. Jesus' response, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. What I, what I love what Mary says to the servants in verse 5 of John chapter 2, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. If Mary could respond to us this morning, I would say she would say the same thing to us. Don't ask me. Don't bring your petitions to me. Don't seek me. Whatever Jesus says for you to do, that's what you are to do. It's significant in these last recorded words of Mary in Scripture that she's directing the servants to her son, rather than to her as a mediator or some sort of liaison for him. 
Growing up Roman Catholic, we would go as a family to Newport Beach, Newport Beach for the day out in Southern California, and, and pulling into a full parking lot, Mom would have us pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, help us find a parking space. <laughs> Didn't always work, but here's a problem with that. Those who believe they need to go through Mary to have their prayers heard or to gain influence in heaven have not really studied carefully the relationship between Jesus and his mother. You know, she didn't carry a whole lot of weight with him. Oh, oh, he loved her. He cared for her. Even when he was on the cross, he was taking care of her. But he was never influenced by her, nor did he take orders from her. In fact, when it was told to him that his mother wanted to see him in Matthew twelve forty through 50, he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hands towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if I were trying to get to Jesus through Mary, those words would be troubling to me because on this particular occasion, she couldn't get access to him. Later on in Acts 1, we see Mary with the other disciples praying there in the upper room. But we find she's not leading the prayer meeting. Neither is she sitting in some place of honor or prominence. She's just one of them praying along with the rest. Listen, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now again, don't get me wrong. Jesus loved his mother, but he also knew that man's tendency would be to exalt her and deify her. So what does he do here in Luke 11? He challenges the people to hear the truth. He focuses the crowd's attention back where it needs to be to the Word of God. Look at verse 28. And he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. In other words, Jesus says, Yes, agreed, Mom was great. She's blessed among women. But more than that, if you truly want to be blessed, be those that hear the Word of God and keep the Word of God. He, see, Jesus brings it right back to the focus on the Word of God. Blessed are those who hear it, and blessed are those who keep it. And we need to ask ourselves, when we hear things from teachers, from pastors, from maybe podcast preachers, is it biblical? Is it found in Scripture? Does it line up with Scripture? Is what they're saying doctrinally correct? There's a lot of things out there that get us distracted and get us away from the Word of God. I find it interesting that the leader of the Roman church, Pope Francis, during COVID, thought for sure Mary would protect them. In his prayer to Mary, it went like this, quote, Oh, Mary, you will always shine on our path as a sign of salvation and of hope. We entrust ourselves to you, health of the sick who at the cross took part in Jesus' pain, <laughs> keeping your faith firm. You, salvation of the Roman people, know what we need, and we are sure you will provide so that, as in Cana of Galilee, we may return to joy and feasting after this time of trial. Help us, Mother of Divine Love, to conform to the will of the Father and to do as we are told by Jesus, who has taken upon himself our sufferings and carried our sorrows to lead us through the cross to the joy of the resurrection. Amen. He goes on, Under your protection we seek refuge. Holy Mother of God, do not disdain the entreaties of we who are in trial, but deliver us from every danger, O glorious and blessed Virgin. There is so much wrong with that prayer. It's not funny. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Hebrews 7.25 says it's Jesus who is able to save uh, to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them, not Mary. 
It was Jesus who was moved with compassion, touched the lepers, healed the sick, fed the hungry, preached the good news to the poor, wept over sin, and died in our place. Not Mary. It was Jesus who embraced the little children, forgave the repentant, delivered the possessed, prayed for his accusers, sought to to find the lost sheep, gave sight to the blind, and raised people from the dead. Not Mary. It was Jesus alone. In Isaiah 53, 4-6, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The attachment for our peace was uh, upon Him. By His stripes, we are healed, not Mary. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all, not Mary. It's Jesus who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And although many... People may ascribe all these wonderful titles for Mary. It's Jesus only that the Bible gives these glorious names. It's Jesus alone who is the Redeemer, the Savior, the Dayspring, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Light of the World, Living Water, Bread of Life, Rose of Sharon, Holy One, the Beloved, the Good Shepherd, an author and finisher of our faith, the Anchor, the Word of God, the Door, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the True Vine, the Faithful and True Witness, the Alpha and Omega, the I Am, the Amen, Emmanuel, the Resurrection and the Life. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God is our gentle and caring Father, but He's also a, a jealous Father, protecting his, his children. And He will not share His glory with any other, even with the mother of Jesus, Mary. That is why Jesus challenges the people to, to hear the truth. The best blessing comes to those who hear the Word of God and keep it, He says. So how can we be deceived and distracted from being distracted in these last days by knowing the Word of God? Knowing what it says, keeping it, obeying it. Listen to what Paul says in Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Uh, I like this verse in the New Living Translation. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. One of the biggest problems we have. In our culture today, in our society, in America today, is, is that we have a nation that's, that's really biblically illiterate. Maybe you've seen the video of, a, of the man going around uh, telling people he will, he will give them $20 if they can name one Bible verse. Give me $20 to name one Bible verse. Oh, sorry. I don't know. No one. Not, not a one. Listen, Jesus says, the best blessing comes from those who hear the word of God and keeps. Now, this brings us to our second point. First, we had a distraction, a woman, a woman focused on Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, praising Mary for giving birth to Jesus. But point number two, a second distraction, a crowd focused on signs and wonders. You see, Jesus now goes back to answering that question from verse 16 where it says, others testing him sought for him a sign from heaven. So right off the bat, we know that they're testing Jesus. This isn't about, oh, we need to see, they're, they're testing him. Now, this incident is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew adds a few details that are very helpful in understanding the story. Matthew tells us in Matthew twelve thirty eight, the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. That's how this whole conversation started. Ironically, Jesus had already performed many signs, many wonders. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus at this point had already raised a dead person. 
He had healed countless people, yet they're demanding more signs. Now, the kind of sign they wanted was not specified. It sounds as though they wanted one even more extraordinary than what they've seen up to this point. There's another parallel passage in Matthew chapter 16, where we read, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came testing him, saying, Show us a sign from heaven. In other words, Jesus, we don't want to see any just any old sign. You know, like maybe someone receiving their sight or being able to hear, you know, or a dead person raised. We want to see something bigger, something from, from heaven, like stopping the sun from shining in the middle of the day or, or start the sun shining in the middle of the night. Do something to impress us. Now, Jesus never did any miracle to merely impress people. He never did any miracle to entertain people. There's always a purpose that he had when he performed a sign or a wonder. But the crowd wanted more. Give us a sign from heaven. They weren't seekers of truth. They were ambulance chasers, sensationalists. They, they wanted miracles for miracles' sake. But you see, Jesus was not about to cater that, to that kind of carnality. They had the attitude that says, I will not believe until I can comprehend it. I will not believe unless I see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands. You know, we, we hear that a lot. It's a, it's a lot of a favorite phrase for many people. I'll believe it when I see it. You know, in God's economy, he says, believe and then you'll see it. I think of Joshua in the walls of Jericho when the Lord spoke to him and said, I've given Jericho to you so, he says in Joshua 6.3, you and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn, on the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priest blowing the horns. When you hear the priest give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can, then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. And you hear people go, okay, is there another plan we can do? Uh, really? I mean, this sounds kind of bizarre. But no, Joshua doesn't do that. He believed God's word. And what happened? Signs and wonders followed. Listen, I'm all for signs and wonders. Our God is a God of wonders, and he still moves, and he works in miraculous ways. In fact, Jesus himself said in Mark 16, 17, signs will follow those who believe. What I am against is unbiblical practices and false claims of signs and wonders. Like the two friends who were hunting, and one was always bragging about what a good shot he was, about that time, a duck flew over. He took aim and fired. The duck flew on unscathed. The man paused for a minute and said, My friend, you are witnessing a miracle. There flies a dead duck. <laughs> About a year ago, there were claims that during a healing service that took place in Doppler, a woman's toes grew back after having them amputated due to an injury. Do I believe that God can do that? Absolutely. The problem is no one has seen the before and after pictures. There's no proof. But there's actually a website created over the whole incident called showmethetoes.com. <laughs> and I agree, you know, show me the toes before and after pictures. Listen, if God is going to move in the miraculous, which he still does and he still can, and if God has moved in your life in such a way, give testimony to the fact that God has healed you. Give God the glory. We're told that in First Chronicles 16, 8 and 9. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wonderful or wondrous works. Why? 
Because people can claim all sorts of, of things uh, that are by the hand of God, but it just isn't true. In fact, Jesus gave this warning that in the last days, false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. In other words, uh, there's going to be so many false signs, they'd be so convincing that if it were possible, it's not possible, but if it were possible, God's elect people would even be deceived by them. See, folks, that is why if you see in your bulletin in our statement of faith, it reads, we reject doctrinal viewpoints or spiritual phenomena which are based solely on experience. We look to the Word of God for the basis of all our faith and practice. Listen, feelings will come and go in your Christian walk. We mustn't base our, our, our walk on feelings but on the Word of God. Because if my walk with the Lord becomes dependent on experiences and emotions, that I'm going to be one prone to follow after signs and wonders, whether they're biblical or not. And, and that is where we see some very bizarre practices and false teachers doing bizarre things in the name of God that have no basis in the Word of God, but only based on that next emotional high. And the people involved in such things, Jesus would describe them in Matthew 15, 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, I know I may offend some people, and I don't say this to come against another man's ministry or work that God is perhaps using in a different way than we do here at Calvary. But I see a great danger that comes when great crowds of people gather together solely for the purpose of signs and wonders and not salvation of the souls. When I see thousands of people show up for a week-long signs and wonders conference, but the Word of God is not taught, people are never given the opportunity to see their sin and need forgiveness for their sin, that concerns me. And again, the reason being because Paul spoke about this in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. And that's exactly the type of mentality that Jesus is addressing here in verse 29. We read, And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, a massive crowd, all, you know, shoulder to shoulder, and they want to see signs, we want to see wonders. And Jesus turns and says, this is an evil generation that seeks a sign. In Matthew's account, he says this is an evil and adulterous generation. Evil speaks of that attitude that says, I will not take God at his word. The adulterous speaks of unfaithfulness in the worst sense. It speaks of one who is not satisfied or content with their spouse. It speaks of, of one who allows his or her heart to be won by another. Now understand, Scripture teaches that it's wise to test the legitimacy of a person who claims to be a prophet of God. Jesus wasn't saying that it's evil or wrong to seek for a sign. God gave signs to Moses, to, to Gideon, to validate his word. The problem is these scribes, these Pharisees, they were asking for a sign to trick Jesus. Ultimately, to destroy Jesus, to discredit Jesus. That's the reason Jesus calls them an evil generation. Again, in verse 29, it says, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to him except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Verse 30, For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Listen, Jesus said, The only sign I'm going to give you is this one. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to rise again from the third day. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in that fish, I'm going to be there three nights and three days in the earth. 
And sometimes we wonder what the most powerful and effective argument of the gospel is. I think we wonder, you know, what would be the most convincing presentation that I could offer that would, would cause this person to believe, that would touch our heart, that they would say, oh, I believe. Now, we might think it perhaps is I mean, how the, the Bible predicts the future, right? You can show them the headlines of today, uh, today's newspaper, pick up your Bible and show them how hundreds of years ago, it prophets, you know, thousands of years ago, it prophesied what our days would be like in the days which we're living. That's a very convincing argument. I think that's one that's very effective. As important as that message is, that in and of itself is not the essential message of the gospel. And sharing the gospel, we might think, well, we should emphasize the fact that people are empty inside, that they have a, a hole in their heart, and it's not going to be filled with anything this world has to offer. The only answer is to have Jesus Christ come into your life. That's true. It's a wonderful thing that God offers. But that in and of itself is not the essential message of the gospel. We might emphasize that we should emphasize the fact that if people would receive Jesus in their life, they'd be happier, they'd have joy, they'd have fulfillment and purpose. Again, very true. We should share that with people. But even that, as wonderful as it is, it's not in itself the essential gospel message. Jesus gave the main message. The essential sign as this is, Jonah was in the belly of fish, I will be in the heart of the earth. Here it is, the main message is that humanity is separated from God by sin. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for, for us, rose again from the dead. And if we turn from our sin, put our faith and trust in him, we can be forgiven. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. Paul writes, in, uh, he puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he goes on, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said the same thing over in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. He said, We preach Christ and Him crucified. Another time he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We need to understand that there's power in the simple message of the gospel and reaching the most hardened of hearts. Don't underestimate its appeal. Don't be ashamed of its simplicity. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just proclaim it. Stand back and watch what God will do. That's the message we need to give. And that's the message that Jesus was giving to these, these religious people here. He said, I'm not going to do some miracle for you. I've already done lots of miracles. I'm not going to do some sign from the heavens for you. This is a sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And I love that he, he points to Jonah, the prophet, as an example. And what a prophet he was. I mean, here's the story of a man who was given a job to do, and he flat out refused to do it. In fact, he even went in the opposite direction. Hence the storm came, which got his attention. He was then thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish. Finally, he repented, and he was regurgitated on the shore of Nineveh. I read a story about a third-grade Sunday school teacher asking her kids, what can we learn from the story of Jonah and the well? One child raised her hand and said, I know, people make wells sick. <laughs> Listen, Jonah was running from God, so the Lord had to turn him around. You might say that Jonah was the original chicken of the sea. Uh, you might say it, I wouldn't say it, but... But listen, we shouldn't be so hard on Jonah. 
I mean, haven't we all been given the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel? And, and, and Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted him to do, and sometimes we don't want to do it either. I think it comes to, to choice. I mean, let me ask you, when was the last time God laid something on your heart to do and you didn't do it? Oh, well, I, I don't know. To be more specific, when was the last time you told someone about Jesus Christ? When was the last time you initiated a conversation about your faith and what the Lord has done uh, for you? See, here is what Jesus was saying. He said, look, Jonah wasn't even a good prophet, but the people repented. Remember, the whole of Nineveh repented, even the king. And, and, and that was from Jonah's message, which, by the way, wasn't even a message of hope. I mean, his message was, 40 days and all of Nineveh will be overthrown, and the sooner the better in my book, I hate you all. <laughs> kind of, I mean, that, that was his heart. Yet, it, despite his flawed message, God used it, got the attention of the people, and they repented. Verse 30 again says, For Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. But Jesus is not done. He continues on, look at verse 31, he says, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now, who is this queen of the south that Jesus is talking about? First Kings chapter 10 is her story. She's also known as the queen of Sheba. She was an Arab monarch ruling over the province known as Sheba, about, about 1,200 miles south, um, southeast of Israel. She was a pagan. She was a non-believer. Yet she heard this incredible wisdom about this incredible wisdom from this Hebrew king named Solomon. So she made this long journey to see him along with this huge entourage that she had. She comes in with these expensive gifts uh, to give this man so she could hear for him for herself. And after doing so, she goes away amazed, saying that his wisdom is so profound that half of it hasn't even been told. So here's the point that Jesus is making. Look, here's this pagan woman bringing great treasures to hear a man with the wisdom from God. But here I am preaching not only wisdom, but how to find salvation from your sins. And all you wanted, some sign. Here I'm pointing you to eternal life, but you will not hear me. The greater than Solomon is here. And then finally, he says in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed are greater than Jonah is here. Someone has given us a quick comparison of Jesus and Jonah. It goes like this. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus was the prophet. Jonah initially disobeyed. Jesus always obeyed. Jonah rose up from the sea. Jesus rose up from the dead. Jonah preached to Nineveh. Jesus preached everywhere. Jonah wanted those people to die. Jesus wants people to live. Jonah preached God's wrath and judgment. Jesus preached grace and mercy. Listen, as we close and we enter a time of communion, God's warning is clear. Judgment is coming, especially to those who have heard the gospel and have rejected it. And here's the point of Jesus. The people of Nineveh repented after hearing God's warning of impending judgment. The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Yet a greater Solomon is here. Showing people the way, the forgiveness, the way to heaven. I mean, here are these religious people, you know, the scripture that you reject what I'm saying. So Jesus is saying, you have no excuse. You have no excuse whatsoever. Folks, I, I don't believe we can read this without thinking of our own country. Thinking about how much God has blessed us as a nation. 
How true that song is that we sing, America, America, God shed His grace on me. All the evangelists in recent history that came out of our nation, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Booty, uh, Booty, Billy Graham, that's Moody and Billy put together. We have heard the gospel over and over and over again. We have more mega churches in the United States than all the other nations in the world put together. Yet how many Americans don't even take the time to listen much, less respond to this message? We need to turn back to God, just like the Ninevites did. If we do not, judgment is coming. Let me say it differently. Judgment is coming no matter what happens to the world today. But my hope is that God would send at least one more spiritual awakening to the United States. You know, we might say, well, well, you know, our president needs to repent. Yeah, he certainly does. <laughs> but revival starts with you. Revival starts with me. I can say, well, that person needs to repent. Those people need to repent. They sure do. But all we need to do is look at our own heart. And God says, is my life where it ought to be? Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people... He says, which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. We, we, we want healing in our land, and so we should. God says, my people, which are called by my name, we need to humble ourselves. We need to turn from our wicked ways. You know, we point the finger at Hollywood. We point the finger at Washington. God says, no, man, I'm pointing the finger at you. It's at the church, you and me. I want my people to humble themselves. I want my people to walk right before me. And it starts with us asking for forgiveness. It really does. Now, final day, no one complete ignorance that has heard the gospel message. See, we know better. And I think what a better segue going into communion and spending this time in communion. You see, it's a time for us to go back, look to the cross, see what Jesus did for us as we looked at, and say, Lord, if there's anything in my life that needs to be out of there, I need to confess it. I need to repent. We need to repent of our sin as, as a nation and understand Jesus died and rose again for this relationship we have. People say, well, if you just, you know, maybe there's somebody here that you don't believe. You haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you're like some of these guys. Just show me one more miracle, then, then I'll believe. Uh, not even a big one, a small one. Make Pastor Tom's jokes funny. Okay, that's, that's a big miracle. Do you think that if you saw a miracle, you'd believe? Not necessarily. Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given but that of the prophet Jonah. If you want a sign, look to the cross. If you want a sign, look to what Jesus did on the cross. As they pound the spikes into his hands, into his feet. As they put that crown of thorns upon his head, as he shed his blood for you. Because there is no other way for us to have contact with God our Father except through Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you don't have that relationship with Jesus, give your life to Him today. Cry out to Him today. I want to give us that opportunity and we're going to enter into communion. Let's pray together. Father.